The world is old and the powers are weary. The god at the door of night has fallen and the great enemy of the world has come back from the timeless void. The shadow has awakened the great evils to regain dominion over Ardar. Darkness shall cover the land if not for the deeds of a small fellowship of elf friends. Join the players of this Dungeons and Dragons campaign as they fulfill the events of the Dagor Daggeron prophecy and strive with Morgoth on the plains of Valinor. Welcome to the Undying Lands in Part 3 of the Inglorian Bastards Trilogy, Trials of the Valar. Alright, welcome everybody to episode 140 of the Inglorian Bastards podcast. Uh, with me tonight, I have probably the last Tolkien scholar that I'll interview for the run of the um, for the trilogy. Um, so it's it's both a happy night because you guys know how much I look forward to these, um, and kind of a sad night because um, I'm I'm thinking back to all the great interviews that we've done and how much I've learned, um, and how really one interview kind of leads to other interviews and i you know it's um it's once you start going down that rabbit hole it's hard to stop but um let me let me tell you about the person i have with me tonight so he is he has worked for both tsr and wizards of the coast on dungeons and dragons um he is uh he's a scholar specializing in jrr tolkien um and um you all probably have heard of his book a History of the Hobbit. Um, and that is not his only book, but I would like to welcome to the podcast tonight, John Ratliff. Thank you very much for having me. It's nice to be here. And and John, I, when, when we were chatting via email and we were setting this up, I, I, I met when I said, I, I, I can't believe you're, the, um, you're my sort of final interview with, with your interest in D&D and Tolkien. I, I figured I would, you would have been first on my list, but I'm just so happy to have you here. Um, but I want to get right into this. I know that you studied, you started studying Tolkien um, and you, you ended up moving to Wisconsin yeah. to, to study at Marquette. Um, because there's there's a great sort of Tolkien library there. Is that right? Could you tell us a little bit about that? That's right. I'm originally from Arkansas. I was finishing up my master's and was looking around to apply for a PhD. And there are two places in America that have Tolkien collections. There's Wheaton College and there's Marquette University. And Wheaton College doesn't have a graduate program. Hmm. So that's why I applied to, to Marquette, moved to Wisconsin, so that I could work on the manuscripts in my spare time. What's surprising is I'm not the only person who's done this kind of thing, because when I got there, I found a guy named Tom Santosky had just moved from Scranton to Milwaukee. On his way to California, he'd stopped in Milwaukee and looked at the Marquette manuscripts and never got further than Milwaukee. <laughs> he spent the next 12 years there in Milwaukee working with the manuscripts. Wow. That I, you know, I don't blame him. Um, and so, how long were you there? I was there from 1981 to 1990, so almost a decade. And you and you got your degree there. I I'm got guessing? my PhD there, which I like to call it a PhD in fantasy. Actually, they didn't let you do dissertations on Tolkien in those days, but they would let you do a dissertation on, say, Lord Dunsany, the Irish writer, because he wrote for the Abbey Theater. The hmm. fact he was one of the great science uh, fantasy short story writers was sort of not in the official account of literature in the canon 
So I got to write on Lord Dunsany, who was a, one of Tolkien's favorite fantasy writers. Oh, wow. He's the first, first person to come up with his own fantasy pantheon. Really? Nobody had ever come up with a fa- pantheon of fantasy gods before Lord Dunsany. So he's a huge influence on Lovecraft, Tolkien, and everybody else. Everybody else, including Dungeons and Dragons, right? Including Dungeons and Dragons. Dunsany is right right there in the background. Huh. Well, um, so so can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the collection there? Like, um, can, right. can you put a can you put a picture in our minds? It is an amazing collection that in the they bought it from Tolkien in the 1950s. About seven thousand pages of draft typescript proofs, corrected proofs, just a huge collection, which was sort of roughly sorted into this is book one, this is book two, this is book three. Um, in the 70s, they went through and did a very close count of every page. So they sort of assigned every page as a number. But it turned out that when Tolkien had packed up the box of manuscripts and sent it to Milwaukee, he had accidentally left out some. And his son was working on the history of Middle Earth and had just decided he was going to have to deal with the hop with the Lord of the Rings. Hmm. And so he went through all the manuscripts he had, which turned out to be about 3,000 pages. Marquette took all the manuscripts it had, which was about 7,000 pages, and Tom and I and the archives and Christopher sorted out the sequence in which all these pages went with they were interwoven. Oh, wow. Tom Santosky worked that out with Christopher Tolkien. It was a huge undertaking. Uh, you know, this draft that Christopher had led to this draft which Marquette had was a, was a revised draft. But then Christopher had the typescript, and then Marquette had the revised typescript. Sometimes it was that complicated. Wow! And and so, I mean, did you did you get to interact with Christopher? Um, he was doing it all by uh, postage at that point. Okay. But he did, as he was wrapping up the project, decided he wanted to come to Milwaukee and see the manuscripts for himself. So they held a conference here in 1987, the Marquette MythCon. And Christopher Tolkien was the guest of honor. He came and gave a talk in which he read an unknown piece of his father's called the 1960 Hobbit, which is now published in the history of the Hobbit. I got to print it, but it was completely unknown when Christopher came and read it out loud. Do you mind if, if we, that's a, that's a good segue into talking about um, your book here, which is, let me tell you, um, the, the version that I have is called A Brief History of the Hobbit. And this is, uh, 600 pages of wonderfulness. Um, and, and, and you mentioned kind of a little bit about, um, the, the manuscript that, that Christopher read a piece of, um, but I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about sort of the evolution of the history of the Hobbit. Sure. Um, there are three different versions. There's the original history of the Hobbit, which is a two volume hardcover. I got the chance to add some extra material into it for revised edition. So that's the the complete history of The Hobbit, which is about a thousand pages, one volume. And then I got to do an abridgment of it for people who wanted a little less than that. And that's called The Brief History. It's only about 600 pages. When I was abridging it, I cut down a lot of my commentary. I kept as much Tolkien as possible and reduced the Ratliff. anybody, (laughs) Anybody picking this up is picking it up for the Tolkien. The Ratliff is there to make it look a little easier to follow, a little more uh, smoother. Oh, well, I can tell you from what I've read so far, I don't mind the Ratliff. <laughs> Thank you. You got it. So tell us more. It's 
basically arranged using Christopher Tolkien's History of Middle-earth as a model. You get the manuscript followed by some textual notes, followed by some commentary. You start with the earliest manuscript, then you give the next version and the next version. So the history of The Hobbit begins with the three, six pages we have left from the first handwritten draft of the first chapter of the book. I call that phase one, the Prifton type, the Prifton fragment, mm-hmm. because we're missing like the first six or eight pages out of that chapter. What we have is the second half of the chapter. But before that was lost, he made a typescript. And I called that the Bladorthan typescript. And it's 12 pages long and covers the opening of the story as well as revised version of the fragment. Mm-hmm. And then we have what I call phase three, which is where he starts the main manuscript. It goes all the way from page 13 to page 167. It's most of the book in one big, long chunk. It actually starts in the middle of a sentence at the end of the typescript. <laughs> so you have 12 pages of typescript. It breaks off in the middle of a sentence. First word of what would be the next word of that sentence is the first word of the manuscript that follows. He got all the way to the scene at Raven's, uh, where the they're talking to the Ravens, wondering what has become of Smog. And he stopped at that point and went back and made a typescript of the whole thing so other people could actually read it. And then he wrote a quick conclusion, the last four or five chapters, all in one go. And that's pretty much how he wrote The Hobbit. It's it's really cool to read about. Um, specifically like I, I'm at the point, um, or I just passed the point where there's just, um, they're talking about sort of that, that first like seminal line, right? Like in a hole in the ground and, and talking about sort of like all of the different references about, um, you know, his recollection of writing that, that piece. Do, do you remember, yes. do you remember the section I'm talking about? And it's, that's become even more complicated. About two years ago, a new, a new version of the origin of The Hobbit showed up in a diary from his 13-year-old son. And it suggests that I got it wrong, that the, Tolkien actually started it in 28 or 29, not 1930 or 31. Really? So the fun never ends. Even uh. something as you think as many people have poured over the evidence as carefully Still something new can come out as late as the fall of 2018. New piece of evidence, which is you know absolutely authentic, absolutely contemporary, and blows the old evidence out of the water. Huh. That, that well, thing could happen even after 80 years. Well, I, you know, I, I think like how many times I've sat down to try to write a story and I tried to rewrite a story and we're talking, you know, one or two attempts. And if somebody had to ask me, hey, when did you write that? <laughs> I would have no idea. Can you can you imagine asking someone like Tolkien or, or people in Tolkien's life like, hey, when did he write that? You know, he wrote and rewrote these things over and yes. over again. Trying to pinpoint that must be so difficult. He's a, He's an extremely conscientious author and that he's willing to rewrite it as many times as it takes to get it just the way he wants it. He's, he doesn't draft things off and then he's done. C.S. Lewis was great at he would think of something, he'd write it out, he'd revise it, he was done. Yeah. yeah. He, he never went back and did revised versions of his book or very rarely. Tolkien goes over and over and over. But you know, it gets better and better and better. It's worth the work. Well, I, so we recently, um, I, I'm in just going through this. I, one of my favorite things to read are authors' acknowledgments. 
And um, I noticed in, in your acknowledgement, you, you mentioned Doug Anderson. Well, yes. we, actually, we actually just interviewed Doug. Um, and so could, could you tell us, did, did you get a chance to, to sort of correspond with Doug in the, in the process of writing this? Yes. To, to, to back up a little bit, that about 1986, Christopher was just deciding that he was going to have to deal with the Lord of the Rings in the history of Middle Earth. But he didn't want to deal with The Hobbit, which he thought was really sort of a side thing. It wasn't really part of the legendarium. But he had several people who wanted to work on The Hobbit. Doug Anderson had started a project on The Hobbit. Tom Santosky and myself. So basically, we got together with Christopher. And what the agreement we worked out is Doug would continue working on his project, which is what became the, the Annotated Hobbit, which I highly recommend if you haven't seen The Annotated Hobbit. It's a really good book. Tom and I collaborated on an edition of the Hobbit manuscript and it got complicated. I had to drop out because it turns out you can't co-edit a book and write a dissertation at the same time. <laughs> Not if you're me anyway, you have to do one or the other. Sure. So Tom wound up being the sole writer on that, but then he got ill and couldn't finish it. So he asked if I would finish it. So after he was gone, I went back and st basically started over and did it as a sort of like a one man show. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid it was complicated, but that was how it worked out. Doug specifically started with the first published text of the first printing of the first edition and worked forward from there of everything that had been revised and changed. I basically worked up to the point of publication, starting with the beginning of the writing and ending with publication. So I viewed our books as complementary, that his covered the whole history of post-publication and mine the history up to that point. And it was a great relief that there were a lot of things I didn't have to deal with because Doug had already done them. And there were things that Doug didn't have to deal with because I was covering that as well. So did you, in, in, the, in the process of, of writing this and sort of being at Marquette, did, did you bump into anybody else? I, you know, uh, any other sort of notable Tolkien scholars? Um, and the reason I ask is um, I, I got a chance to, to interview Karen Wynn Fonstad's son, um, I saw that Mark. podcast. I went and looked that one up. That was a very yeah. good one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a he and his father are very sweet people. Um, I, I talked to them for probably over a year before I got a chance to interview them, and um, and he he mentioned in the interview that you know his mother at night you know would would spend a lot of time on sort of her her atlas, and she'd you know drive down to Marquette because they didn't live too far away from 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 there at the time. So, so I was wondering, did, you know, over the course of sort of writing this and being studying at Marquette, did you get a chance to, to bump into anybody that the listeners might know? I really did. Um, speaking of Fonstadt herself, I didn't know her well, but I did get to meet her at the 83 conference. Wow. I saw her in Wisconsin not too long after that. And she was sort of debating, you know, where do you go from doing a history of middle uh, Atlas of middle earth? And I suggested she get in touch with the people at TSR that seemed to me to be a really good fit that they needed people to do high quality maps of fantasy worlds. And she had the skills to do high quality maps and of fantasy worlds. So you connected her with TSR. I certainly recommended she contact them. I don't know if that had any, wow. if that was just a confirmation or something or if that led her to it, but That's they pushed it. her to give it a try and she must have because we do have the books she did for TSR and they're, they're very good. I got to know Richard West at Madison and Jared Lobdale Got to know Verlin Flieger when she came to use the manuscripts. Um, Mike Foster, uh, Wayne Hammond came out for that 83 conference. Wayne and Christina both 
interviewed separately or together is definitely worth your while. Yeah. They know, well, you can look at their chronology and you can basically play the game of what was Tolkien doing a hundred years ago today. Well, can I, can I ask, um, you, you mentioned TSR and this seems like a yeah. good segue, um, to, to talking about some of the work that you've done for our beloved Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so you, you worked both for TSR and Wizards of the Coast. Is that and correct? Hasbro, all three. Yeah. Wow. I think I'm the only person to have been laid off by all three companies. <laughs> That's great. But I was there for 10 years all told between the time spent at each of those three. It adds up to a little over 10 years. Oh, wow. So did, did you get to interact um, with like Gary or or um, um, what's the other gentleman who started it? Ron? Arneson, yeah, exactly. Uh, not really. They were sort of in the past by the time I got there. I got there in 91, not long after finishing up my degree at Marquette. But I did get to meet both men. Um, I met Guy Gax at Winter Fantasy when I saw he was running a playtest of his new game, Legendary Adventures. I thought a chance to play a game with Gygax as the DM, you know, you don't pass up something like that. No way. It turned out it was Gygax's DM, his eight-year-old son, and I were the entirety of the playtest. So I kind of took a supporting role, and uh, he did. He devoted letting the kid have a lot of fun. And, you know, it was it was fun. It was worth doing. If I'm not mistaken, didn't didn't Gary Gygax um, wasn't the origins of, of Dungeons and Dragons kind of with Gary and his kids? Um, yeah, it's two two different strands came together. One was Arneson playing more games in Minneapolis area. The other was Gygax running all kinds of games in Lake Geneva. And when Gygax sort of heard about Arneson saying they got together, I like. The way I like to describe it is that Arneson had the idea and Gygax kind of figured out how to make a game other people could play. And they both, it wouldn't have happened without the both of them. I did get to meet Arneson a few years later, that he was out in uh, at Wizards of the Coast when they were starting on third edition. They brought him in as a consultant, and he was very pleased by that. I don't think he actually wound up writing any of third edition, but he was... You know, it was kind of classy of them to, to ask after all that years, do you have anything you want to say? Absolutely. So speaking of, of third edition, um, am I right to think that, that you did some writing for second and third edition? Yes, I was uh, the co-editor of both the Player Handbook and the DMG, which are the two of the three core books for third edition. And for most of the whole D20 system, D20 system does derive from the third edition rule books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also got to work on a lot of other stuff. Um, the Night Below box set, Return to the, to the uh, Tomb of Horrors, Return to Keep of the Borderlands. Oh, wow. Uh, Mark of Amber, The Reverse Dungeon. There were quite a few. I was really grateful to get the chance to edit and to design. I guess by the time I was done at TSR and Wizards, I'd worked in at some point in just about every game world they had. And you yourself are, are a role player still? Oh, yes. or um, In a, a Call of Cthulhu campaign every Saturday night and an D- old-style D&D campaign every Monday night. Yeah, well, that's how I came to it. You know, the, the original um, Advanced Dungeons and & Dragons and the original Oriental Adventures and um, all of those, if you can picture those books. 
oh yes, I've got, I don't have to imagine because they're here in front of me and to my side in my office. <laughs> and all, the, all the modules to the left, all the rule books above that, all the box sets across from me and all the third edition stuff to the right of that. Well, can, can I ask, do you have a favorite campaign setting? Um, you know, fifth edition sort of is, is, all, is all about sort of forgotten realms. I'm a bit of an iconic class is that my favorite is not the generated campaign worlds, but campaign worlds that people make up for themselves. I see. Of all the published worlds, I think Ravenloft is my favorite. Oh, yeah. Though I certainly thought Al-Kadim and uh, Mistara were, were awfully good as well. Well, we, we, we could, I was going to say, we could, we could probably just talk Dungeons and Dragons for forever, but, um, I'd be fine with that, but <laughs> yeah, well, I, I wanted to ask, so, um, your name came up, uh, originally probably three or four or five months ago when I was talking with, uh, Verlin Flieger, um, and, and how it came up was I have a book that I believe you put together for her called A Wilderness of Dragons. Oh, yes, that's a picture for Verlin. Yeah, can you talk about how sort of that came to be? Uh, sure. There's uh, In scholarship, there used to be a thing called a festschrift, which, in which people would gather together and contribute essays in honor of somebody, usually someone who had been in the field a long time, who had mentored them, who had been their teacher, and the, the idea holds that there's some people you just want to show this person's really important, yeah, you know, this person has been an inspiration to other people. Here's a book in her, his or her honor. Mm-hmm. And so I thought Verlin deserved that. So I got talked to people and people contributed essays. And I edited them and we got it published. That's We thought The Wilderness of Dragons was just a nice name. It comes out of one of Tolkien's essays. Uh, I wondered if it was a quote of something. Well, I, I you know... I'm sure that this is this is like a traditional thing, but for her specifically, the the kinds of essays that you have in a wilderness of dragon just fit Verlin so well because yeah, you know her essays are just so interesting and um, so witty. You know, I was really I, pleased that there was a nice nice variety of various things that she's worked on. People doing essays, drawing on her work and developing her work. And there was even some on her fiction, which made a nice little sort of path part at the end. I want to transition if I could now. So okay, we, we've talked a little bit about Tolkien and a little bit about D&D. Um, what we haven't talked about too much is, is sort of the storyline for, um, for my campaign. And, and, that's, and that's kind of how this all came to be, right? It's, you know, a group of friends and I got together and I put together this trilogy, which wasn't going to be a trilogy at first. We were just playing uh, the Adventures in Middle-Earth rule set from Cubicle 7. Um, and, uh, you know, so we played through sort of Middle Earth proper and about halfway through that campaign, I was like, you know what, there's more to this story. And, and so, um, moving forward in time, um, the storyline took them to, you know, the Lonely Isle, to Tolerasea, and, and then finally to, um, you know, Amon, Valinor area. And, and so for, for me, it was really cool because I got to kind of work backwards in time, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and um, for me, that's the most interesting part, right? Was the, the Silmarillion sort of time frame. Um, and, and so your episode here um, is going to air, I think, around um, probably around July 20th. Um, 2020. And um, 
right around that time, the characters are doing what I'm referring to as trials of the Valar. Um, these 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 um, tasks that the Valar, who sort of at the end of days are weak and weary, have have tasked these adventurers to to do these things to bring about the last battle. Um, and and one of the things that that you know I have them kind of hopping around all over the place doing these trials, the characters, and they, they end up, um, at Mount Gundabad and, and, you know, in, in sort of my planning, I, I had, I had imagined the, you know, the birthplace of Durin, right. The, the awakened, not the birthplace, but the, uh, the awakening point of, of right. Durin, the deathless. Um, and that I had imagined some sort of like tribute shrine that the dwarves had created and hidden away, um, that the orcs couldn't find. Um, and so that, so they show up there and um, one of my characters, um, whose name is Burren, um, and I don't know if you know um, anything about uh, sort of appears in the draft of uh, Council of Elrond. Yes, very good. Oh, very good. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, exactly. So, That's a great so name. It, it's a great name, um, and it um, he originally he had written, um, and, and he didn't follow through with this, obviously, but Burren. Um, is mentioned where you where you just mentioned him, um, but he was also mentioned as a possible son to Balin, um, and he he had abandoned that. Um, and and so kind of um, Burin thinks that he is the son of Balin, sort of going through the first part of the campaign, even in like the, um, the second part of my trilogy, and um, he learns that he he was he's actually just adopted, and that. You know his true lineage puts him in sort of kind of the in the the Dane sort of family tree, um, which which puts him in line to be the seventh incarnation of Durin the Deathless, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, and so I refer to this as I, I, here, here's the quote that I used in the in the campaign: "A hero of mixed blood and lost heritage will rise and rekindle the forge of Durin. He will be seventh in line and seventh in number with the awakened lords of old." They are the last children of Aule and will serve him and aid him in the remaking of Arda after the last battle. So I was wondering um, if there's, a, you know, if, if you've spent any time thinking about, um, you know, during the Deathless and the, the seven incarnations, or if, if you'd like to add anything to that. We, generally, what we do here on the podcast is I'll I'll throw out something from the campaign and, and people like, you know, Mike Trout and Corey and Verlin, they'll all kind of, you know, pick it apart and say, Oh, well, that's plausible. You know, um, a lot of times what, what the scholars end up saying are, well, it's Tolkien. Of course it's possible. (laughs) Like he didn't, he didn't flush that out. So, uh, but I was wondering if you had anything you wanted to add to this, this part. I'm curious if, if in this reconstruction, if Buren would have been defeated, defending the lonely mountain. Yeah. It seems to be likely of the likeliest place for him to have been between the council of Elrond and the end of the age at the end of the third age when they hear that uh dane has died in battle oh yeah i, I guess Burin must have been with him yeah i mean to so over, to take over the lordship of, of Durin's folk yeah well so i think if if that is the case um and that makes a lot of sense then that's i think a flaw in my story planning uh, I, I think i think what i was trying to plan for Burin was um you know um originally i think they eventually want to take back Kazakh Dune, right? They they right. they sort of they want to because that's kind of their their, their place, right? That that's where their people are and uh, or should be. And so 
I was kind of, I was kind of his job after the last battle was to sort of, you know, bring all the tribes together of what's, of what's left of the dwarves, help to remake, you know, to fix the damage caused by this last battle and to sort of retake, um, Moria or cause of doom. Um, but you're right that, that would make, that would make a lot of sense. And that seems like a flaw in my planning. Dagger, dagger left. Then, you know, everything's off the table because that's the battle of battles. I think that's all the questions I have for you, except for, um, of course, the, the thing that everybody's going to sort of want to know about, and that's anything that you have going on right now, anything that you're excited about that, that you'd like to talk about. Um, I, I notice on your website, um, you have a section for sort of forthcoming work. So anything like that you want to talk about? Um, actually, I'm working on a big project that I've been working on for several years that I'm pretty excited about. Um, I mentioned the Marquette manuscripts that have this large amount of material that came from Tolkien in the 50s, and another large amount of material that came from Christopher Tolkien in the 80s. They've never fully integrated those manuscripts. Hmm. And what they're doing now is they have created electronic scans of every page of every manuscript, high-quality electronic scans that you can click on and enlarge the page or rotate the page. What I've been doing is setting up a sort of structure that if, if you click on this button, you get the first draft of the first chapter. If you go to the next button to the right, you get the second draft of that chapter. Third draft. If you go down in a column, you get the next chapter that he wrote. Oh, wow. So you get this pattern. If you go across it one way, you get chapter by chapter the sequence in which he wrote the book. If you go down the other column... You get each version of the book, each chapter. If you want to just look at the first chapter, you get each version in order. So when they're done with this, when we've got it all sorted out, and we're pretty pretty close to done now, you'll be able to call up the, the screen, pick the version of the chapter you want to look at, look at it in great detail, open up another screen, compare. Not sure if I'm describing it clearly enough, but it's... It sounds amazing. And is there a, do you have like really easy to navigate from one specific, very specific text to another very specific text or to see it? Do you have, do you have like a name for this project? Um, you know, I don't think we have a name for it. <laughs> We've been referring to it as the, the tree because the tree grows organically and sends out shoots and branches. Well, I think for, for a Tolkien project, the tree makes a lot of sense. But uh, it's fascinating. It's like you take a simple thing like the king's letter. You know, at the very end of the book, Aragorn writes, they get a letter that Aragorn the king has written to Sam. Yeah. But it turns out there are four drafts of that letter because Tolkien never did anything once. <laughs> and it's like... I look at these four drafts. Which is the first? Which is the second? Which is the third? Which is the fourth? So you'll be able to click on, open up, compare once we get it all sorted out. That sounds awesome. And and do you think that this is, you know, I've, I've gotten a chance to, to talk with um, um, some uh some digital philologists, um, right. and, 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 and do you think that this is, this is where scholarship is going to sort of make, to, to sort of like digify, or, or I, I don't know the correct term, but to, to essentially make all of these manuscripts electronic so that, so that people can access them and they don't have to go to the Bodleian or the Marquette, for example. 
think it varies by the project. The author like Tolkien, a lot of people want to consult the manuscripts. So there's a lot of wear and tear. So there's the impetus of let's, instead of having them deal with the original pages, which are, you know, fairly old by now, let's let them look at it electronically. There are other authors that people don't refer to as often that there's no real push to get it scanned. It's just that if once it is scanned, it's more accessible on site and off site. It would be wonderful to have the day when there's more things available, more things readily available. But it's it's a big job. It's a lot of scanning and yeah. a lot of sorting and organizing. So I think it'll practically it will happen with the people that are there's a demand for it. You know, if you do all of Tolkien, there are people that want to see all of Tolkien. Right. If you do all of another author from his time, there may not be the, the same demand. But if I were to do it with Dunsany, I know that I like Dunsany, but there are fewer people interested in the complete Dunsany than the complete Tolkien. Well, see, I've, I've had this conversation with several people about just getting... Um, I, I tend to drive a lot, and so I would love to see... You know, all of the books that I've talked about in my interviews from the various people that I've mentioned, I would love to see audiobooks. Um, yes. You know, from you know, Tom Shippey's books to Verlin's essays to to your History of the Hobbit. Like, I would love to have like a Tolkien collection, like a scholarly collection of audiobooks. And I'd, I'd like for the rest of Tolkien, not all of Tolkien is available as audiobooks. I would really love to see more like The Fall of Arthur as an audiobook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As some of the. Uh, last few books Christopher Tolkien did but you're right the books about Verlin's book Shippy's book uh, there's a lot of good stuff that would be nice to have on audiobook I think there are there is a demand that bit by bit it does get out there bit by bit we will get more of it yeah well I hope your campaign goes well it sounds like you've got a really interesting setup for thank you well so we're we're um, we're almost finished with this one, and and what comes next for me, um, we kind of rebranded because I have other stories that I want to tell after this one, and so I'll be kind of stepping away from Tolkien um, and uh, stepping into um, Symbia, if you're familiar with uh, the far east of the Sword Coast. Uh, Symbia was left as like a dungeon master's playground. Ah. Um, and there was, um, you know, so not a huge amount has been written about it. There are several novels that Paul S. Kemp wrote about Erebus Kale. Is um, this in Forgotten Realms? It is. It is. Okay. Yeah. And so, so I'll be um, the next um, after after the last battle. The next fifty episodes will be about a story that happens after the Godborn novel, in around fourteen ninety one DR. So that'll be a very different campaign. It sure will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for coming tonight. All right. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Keep up the good work. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Though this marks the end of the episode, the road goes ever on. Until next time, join us at longwinded.one and consider giving us a review on Apple Music, Spotify, or really whichever platform you choose.